0: Peace Talks is a monthly event hosted by Paddington Anglican Church aimed at serving the community in promoting and cultivating deep conversations about life, the world and everything. Peace is an acronym standing for political, ethical, artistic and cultural engagement and that's what we hope to do together this evening and at all these gatherings. In fact we've now had over 50 of these events in the last few years with a cumulative attendance in the thousands um, as we seek to think afresh about the challenges, crises, and critical opportunities of our age in the light of the old, old stories about Jesus and the long tradition of thought and engagement that they have provoked. And we gather tonight to listen, think, and learn on the unceded land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I acknowledge and welcome uh, all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people here tonight. I extend respect to elders past and present And for some 2,000 generations, the first peoples of these lands, now called Australia, have been custodians and caretakers under the Creator, observing and learning, receiving and giving, managing this land and its waters in which they've found a home. We gratefully acknowledge their long presence and wise care in this place. We mourn the violent wounds done to this land and to the peoples it has sustained for so long. And we recommit ourselves to walking the path of humility and friendship seeking to uncover a shared future. As you came in, you will have picked up a few bits of paper, hopefully. One slip as information about the next couple of Peace Talks events. Uh, The one for March uh, will be a conversation between me and Reverend Dr. Jason John. Um, A bit of a looking back at bushfires and what we might learn from them and how they might shape our common life together. Uh, And then in April, a panel with four experts in four different fields coming together to uh, share their overlapping insights uh, into marginalization and grace, centers and peripheries in a world turned inside out. So put those in your diary. It's time to get into the main course of the evening, a feast for our minds and hearts. Ebony Birchall is a lawyer who specializes in large-scale public interest litigation. She's acted in landmark legal matters such as the Manus Island Class Action, and the immigration data breach uh, representative complaint and it's, is currently working on investigations concerning government accountability. She's in the very final stages of a PhD in political philosophy, human rights, and the impact of politics and culture on ethics. She is on the People Seeking Asylum team for Common Grace and is a fundraising coordinator for the Katoki Trust for Overseas Aid, as well as a member of the 3PM congregation here at St. George's. And tonight she'll be addressing the topic How do you work out what is good when politics are at play? Drawing from her PhD research regarding the impact of politics and culture on ethics, we'll be challenged to think through how we reach our opinions around what is good. At the end of her presentation, there'll be an opportunity for questions. So please join me in welcoming Ebony Birchall.
1: Thanks so much for coming. I'm going to start by explaining to you how this idea of doing good and and my sort of I guess questioning around doing good and what that actually means sort of came about. Okay, so it came about from this article. Um, Now this article came out a couple of years ago, I was involved in the Manus Island class action which settled in, I think it was 2016, 2017, I'm losing track. But basically, the Manus Island class action, um, it was a case um, where we claimed for unlawful imprisonment and also poor treatment of the 1,900 people who had been detained on Manus Island. Um, So it was a class action on behalf of any person who'd been detained on Manus Island. So this article has three images in it. So the top one, um, as you can tell, is Peter Dutton. Um, Now, I don't want to be unfair on him. There's been a host of politicians involved in the offshore... um, Refugee sort of processing, and um, and there's you know Rudd, Gillard, Abbott, Dutton, um people on either side of the the political spectrum, um, and of course the current iteration of offshore processing is the second iteration. So the first iteration um, was actually started by John Howard and Philip Ruddock, um, and a number of these politicians are very proud of their policies, and 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 they think that their policies are good, and a number of these politicians are also professing Christians. Um, so that's the first image. Now, the second image on this page um, that SBS is reporting on is actually me. Um, this is a photo of me during the uh, press, press conference after the resolution of the claim. I'm not going to play it for you, um, but basically that image is of me um, reading out the, a statement of Majid Kamaseh, who was the lead plaintiff in the class action. Um, Majid is a man from Iran, um, and I'm going to read out... The statement that he wrote. These are his words and it's unfortunate that Majid, um, he didn't want to say these words himself so he asked me to say them for him on his behalf during the press conference. Um, And this is what he said, he said, I was in danger because of my religion, because I was a Christian. I came to Australia seeking peace but I was sent to Manus which was hell. The way we were treated at the Manus Island Detention Centre was degrading and cruel. We had very little access to medical treatment. I was severely burned in a fire when I was a child and needed more than 30 operations, including skin grafts. When I arrived at Manus Island, they confiscated my medicine. Every day in the harsh sun, my skin felt like it was on fire. The scars got worse and then developed gross. I was in pain every minute of every day on Manus Island. I cried every night until I had nothing left. Our voices have never been listened to, but today we are finally being heard and I hope everyone's suffering can be over as quickly as possible. So this is the second image. So the first one, we've got the government who think that they are doing good with these policies. And then the three years preceding this picture of me there, um, I had listened to these people suffering. I had listened to Majid talk to me, um, as well as you know hundreds of others, um, and I'd heard their suffering, and so I very much thought that I was doing good in bringing this class action and being part of it. It wasn't just me, by the way, there was a team of, you know, 30, 40 lawyers involved. Um, And then we get to the third image. The third image here is a video from Pauline Hanson. Um, In her video, she says, um, they're claiming to be mistreated, they're claiming to have mental conditions. These are excuses why there should be a class action against us. It's all about money, that's what it's all about. We're being taken for fools. I'm sick and tired of the bloody do-gooders that are actually pushing this bandwagon. So this is the third image um, in this article. And so we've got the first one, where the government think they're doing good. We've got the second, where I think I'm doing good. And then we've got the third, where Pauline Hanson is directly calling me a bloody do-gooder. So these opposing opinions in this article, and and the accusations that are pointed sort of squarely at me, um, it made me think, um, you know, I had to take this seriously. I had to think about what are my sort of ethical um, ideas and beliefs at this very moment um, in time, and obviously I'd been thinking about this for years. um, And by the way, I looked up what bloody do-gooder actually means, or do-gooder, this phrase, um, and the definition I found was um, well-intentioned but interfering. So I'm going to come back to that definition a bit later. So so this is this is how I got to the question of doing good, and what does doing good actually mean? Um, And and I should mention that today, like my my intention is not to address the sort of policy implications of refugee policy and to sort of debate that because I think that we could talk about that for hours, to be honest. But today what I wanted to do is I wanted to provide some theories and some frameworks around how politics works, um, around how ethics works, um, which is coming from my PhD research, um, to hopefully help you think about ethics and doing good and and biblical ethics and, and, and what the phrase doing good actually means. So the first part, I've got three parts to this. The first part is what do we mean by doing good? Now, I think one of the sheets that you've got is just a list of um, some of the scriptural references that talk about this concept of doing good. So, they're they're sort of phrases like, do not repay um, evil, but instead do good, or turn away from evil and do good, and do not imitate evil, but imitate good. So, there's very much a sense of sort of opposing positions here. There's good and bad, or right and wrong. Um, and there's also an element to these positions which, which considers the treatment of others, so concept of justice and kindness and peace. So, um, so we're very much talking about um, ethics and also the treatment of, of others. And there's a wrestle between good and evil, that's the question of ethics and morality. Um, there's also the question of how should we act, how should we think. How should we treat others? And so I wanna say as a first proposition that I think that we are commanded to actively consider concepts of ethics and morality as followers of Jesus. It's not something that we can just sort of ignore, but it's something that we need to think about. And of course, this idea that we should think about ethics should come as no surprise because this is intimately tied with the idea of loving um, your neighbor. So because we're talking about ethics, I think we need to do some work in actually understanding how ethics work or how ethics develop. And we have formal ethics or what I'm calling informal ethics. Um, so formal ethics uh, are things like formal positions or formal statements of ethics. So we have things like laws. So we might say I'm a good person because I follow the law. Um, you know, I don't mur- murder because it's against the law. So sometimes we draw from our legal system um, to get our ethics. Uh, religious people might draw from um, a religious text, um, like the Bible, for example. Um, We also have professional ethics statements. So, for example, the the medical profession has uh, things like the Hippocratic Oath. So these are sort of formal positions of ethics. But we also have informal ethics. um, And to discuss informal ethics, um, we need to speak a little bit about culture. Now, culture is quite a nebulous sort of concept that we refer to from time to time. um, So I think it might help to define it in some way Um, and the the way I'm defining it tonight is that culture is the ideas and customs and social behaviour of a particular group or society so you could look at the culture of a nation or of a school or a church or an ethnic group so that so culture sort of works on different levels Um, and we contribute to culture with our own individual moral compass and our own actions um, but we're also impacted by culture from learning from others Um, And culture is constantly shifting and evolving. So, for example, there are technological developments um, in our current day, which means we need to consider new ethical problems that we didn't have to consider 100 years ago. So it's constantly evolving. Now, we may fall into the trap of considering that formal ethical positions, like the law, um, might actually be more important than the informal ethical um, sort of developments. and that, that idea might just be because informal ethics are a bit less obvious, or are a bit less um, formalised, but what I want to suggest is that our cultural aspects to ethics and ethical development are perhaps more important. And that's because these informal ethics actually shape our formal ethics. So domestic law, so laws of Australia, um, are actually shaped by our ethical ideas and our culture. Um, and even to interpret a formal ethical position, you will draw from your sort of cultural understanding. So um, so I guess what I want to to say is that um, ethics um, that come through our culture are really important um, and also that culture is a societal feature that impacts on our ethics. Now, I've just used the word... Oh, let's go back. I've just used the word um, societal, so I want to explore that concept a little bit further. Um, And I want to think about when you read through these verses on doing good that you've got in front of you, when you hear them, are you reading them as commands about your personal actions? Or do you perhaps see the links in these verses to ethics at a broader societal level? I think it's tempting or perhaps easier to read the commands around doing good and to apply the logic that I'm a good person because my individual actions are morally good. So, you know, you could say something like, I don't kill, I don't steal. If you're the type of person who gets your ethics from the law, you could say things like, I don't break the law in an obvious way, so I'm a good person. Um, And it's it's easy to leave our analysis at that level of individual action, I think. And of course it is important that we apply ethical considerations to our individual actions. But what we have just realised is that culture is a societal force that impacts ethical decisions. So there is a systemic or a societal perspective that we must consider when it comes to ethical decision making and therefore when it comes to doing good and thinking about what it means to do good. And I'm going to suggest that the impact of societal decisions on ethics is explicitly considered in the scriptures and is explicitly to be a matter of our attention. So if you see the verses on your sheet under the heading directions on what doing good looks like, you'll see God's explanation there that doing good um, talks about doing justice, correcting oppression, um, kindness, pursuing peace. And if we dig a little bit deeper on these concepts, um, I'll provide some definitions. We can see that sort of societal perspective to doing good. So oppression um, can be defined as people being governed in an unfair way or a cruel way. Or justice can be defined as um, when behaviours are fair and equal and balanced for everyone. So these terms explicitly consider systemic considerations or considerations at a societal level, um, considerations about how we govern society, how we view fairness and equality between people. So doing good... And ethical considerations are more complex than simply assessing our actions at an individual level, um, but instead events and conduct at a societal level or a systemic level, um, they have ethical and moral implications and are important to God too. So part two, I'm going to start talking about politics. What does politics have to do with ethics? So I'm just going to rehash quickly what we've just talked about. We've worked out that doing good relates to ethics and morality and treatment of others, and we've thought about the fact that ethics um, exist on an individual level, but also on a societal level. And we've discussed how our culture is intimately linked to our understanding of ethics. So now now we come to this concept of politics, and I mean we use this word here, there and everywhere. Um, So I'm going to provide a bit of a definition around politics as well, just to help us try and understand So, politics relates to the governance of a country, or a state, or an area. It involves making decisions that apply to groups. Um, It refers to achieving and exercising positions of governance. It refers to achieving control over a human um, community. So, politics is about achieving control, or achieving a position of power. It is the intentional navigation of social issues in order for the government, or a person, to gain power. And, I mean, that makes sense if you think about that. politicians' first job is to get votes and to find ways to get elected and to stay elected. So this theme of power and politics as the pursuit of power is something that we're going to be talking about tonight. So, how does politics relate, then, to ethics and culture? And this is what I thought about during my PhD. I think that we have a tendency to underestimate the impact of politics on our lives. And my hunch is that that's because politics is an invisible force, that if we're privileged, doesn't impact us too much. Um, And lots of us don't really understand how politics work. Um, And a couple of years ago, I would definitely put myself in that category too. So when I was um, starting my PhD, I was sort of trying to find a, a topic to research. Um, and um, at this around the same time, a man called Hamid Kazai um, passed away on Manus Island. So Hamid um, died because of a lack of medical treatment. Um, so my expertise in law um, is human rights, but um, more specifically uh, medical care. So I've, I think a lot about um, discrimination in medical treatment, um, and I often um, work o- on behalf of individual uh, detainees within immigration detention to try and help them access medicine um, and medical treatment. So, when Hamid's case came up um, and I started researching this case, uh, because of my experience working in the field, um, immediately I could see that his case was very abnormal. Um, I could see that there had been a different standard of treatment provided to him that would have been provided to an Australian. Um, and instantly I was like, this is unfair, this is, you know, I can see very clearly um, that he hasn't received proper treatment here. And of course, um, Hamid ended up dying because of this medical treatment, so I found this case to be quite confronting uh, because, you know, death is confronting. So how can, you know, humanity get to this point that we are discriminating discriminating against a person to the point where that person then dies? Um, So so I decided that for my PhD, I want to investigate what's happening in these detention centres. What's sort of happening to cause these medical professionals to treat persons detained in a different way to Australians? Now, of course, I was doing this PhD in the law faculty, so for about 80% of my PhD, I thought I was looking for a failure in law or I was looking for some legal principle. Um, But by the time I finished the PhD, uh, I looked back at what I'd written and my conclusions and I had actually proven that politics was the problem, that the medical treatment within detention centres um, was negligent and, and had been changed and altered and and was now unusual, irregular, um, because of politics and that politics was having such an impact to the extreme that politics was impacting the healthcare that some people were receiving, uh, to me is just crazy. I have never studied political theory or cultural studies, so this, you know, as a lawyer was very confronting and I was like, why, how did my PhD come to this? Um, But these are the conclusions that I reached. Um, you know, we're talking about healthcare. This is this is life and death matters, this isn't just, you know, someone having a go at you down the street, um, which is also bad, don't want to say that's not bad. Uh, but I guess my point is, it's just confronting, really, that politics can have such an impact. And I guess we need to start appreciating and understanding that the impact of politics um, is quite serious and politics impacts on our culture, and our understanding of ethics and our understanding of how we treat others. And it also causes changes to the way we treat others. So if politics is altering the health care that some people are receiving, the chances are that politics are impacting our understanding of ethics and politics is impacting uh, Christians, I would put myself in that category, followers of Jesus, our understanding of how we should treat others. And so that's why I think it's important to be talking about this. So politics shapes our culture, and therefore our ethics. So I'm going to try and explain how politics works, how culture <coughs> works, how um, ideology creation or cultural creation works. And this is, this is some of the research that I did as part of my PhD. And I think this is where we're going to pick up some of the takeaways that we can sort of figure out um, you know, what is good and, and, and how to work out what is good. So, I relied on a theory by Norman Fairclough. Um, so he's quite well known um, in the field of what they call critical discourse analysis, um, and cultural studies will often look at the words and the ideas and the images that people use or the representations that people use um, to sort of understand how culture is working, what's important to culture at that particular time. And Fairclough says that there are three aspects um, that we should be looking at when we're sort of analysing what our culture thinks, um, or how our culture has sort of been created. So the first, the first aspect to it is messaging. So his point is that the choice of words that we use or the images that we use will set a message and will create a narrative. So we should be very intentional about the words that we use or the images that we use, and how we. Um, we sort of represent an image or a person. So I've got the example here, economic refugees, and why I think that's a good example is there is no such thing as an economic refugee. That's almost an oxymoron. So um, a refugee under international law has very sort of strict criteria about what makes you a refugee. Um, and and you, there is no such thing as an economic refugee. If you were you know, the idea is an economic refugee is someone who is moving country to seek a better economic position. Um, Under international law, that's not allowed. That's not a refugee. So um, this idea of an economic refugee is a phrase that Pauline Hanson used in her video um, about the people on Manus Island, um, and it just sort of shows a lack of understanding of international law. But but the idea is that people use that phrase, economic refugee, to sort of undermine, I guess, the situation of a refugee and to say, actually, these people um, don't have a valid claim, these people aren't um, entitled to call themselves a refugee, or they're not entitled to our help. That's kind of the message that they're creating with that phrase. It's the same thing with illegals as well. It's sort of casting doubt on that person's character. Um, So the the choice of messaging is very important. Um, The second part of Fair Class Theory Is about power and he says that we need to think about who owns the power to control who is speaking and when they're speaking and what perspective is portrayed Um, and obviously it's very important as well to recognise who doesn't hold the power to speak. So Again, using the refugee situation as an example, we've got things like the secrecy laws that we introduced, the Australian Border Force Act was introduced a couple of years ago, um, where doctors were explicitly not allowed to talk about what happened in detention centres, and if they did talk about what was happening, um, they could be prosecuted, they could be taken to jail um, for up to two years. So that's an example of, of The government trying to control who can speak about refugees who can speak about our detention centers um, and that's that's an attempt under Fairclough's theory he would say this is an attempt to control who is speaking and what representations are being made about our detention systems Um, the same thing could be said about offshoring um, refugees in remote places in countries outside of Australia um, that's sort of taking the humanity, or the person, the image of the person outside of Australia, um, and, and often in places where you know journalists can't access, lawyers can't access. Um, so again, this is this is important to think about power and control, and, and who's controlling the way that our culture is talking about refugees. Do refugees ever have um, the ability or the power to self-represent? It's another really important question to be asking when you're thinking about media and our culture and our ideology. Um, the third part of this is what he calls socio-cultural practice or impacts. And that's the idea that if you've got specific messaging, like illegal immigrants, and you've got specific controls around representations so that refugees can't actually tell their story, but instead we're just hearing the government's version of their story, this will have impacts on culture and ideology. Um, And part of this is that all representations or all messages or all ideology that we hear are a result of history and then all representations will then create history, so it's a recognition that culture, the way we speak, the way we portray images, portray representations, the way we talk about people groups, um, this is, this is an, a force that is embodied into real life, real practice. This is how culture then impacts um, on, on how we see day-to-day affairs. So just some really simple examples. Uh, it's the fact that um, these people that are in detention centres, they're, they're uh, called by their boat IDs rather than their names. Um, I have a quick story on that one. I mean, we hear this reported in the, in the news that, that detainees are called by their boat IDs and not their names um, all the time. And I guess you can go a bit cold to that, but just thinking about it um, for a second, it shows how dehumanised these people actually become. I was speaking to a man on the phone one day and... Um, and he told me that um, that he had just got married to another woman who was also in detention. Um, and often I'm one of the only people that they talk to outside of the detention centers and so I, I went to great lengths to you know, try and make these people feel human or to at least convey some sort of humanity to them in my conversations. So I, I said to him, oh, congratulations, that's so exciting. And I, I had known that he had tried to get married a number of times over the last sort of couple of years but had been stopped for various reasons anyway so when he finally got married i was like congratulations that's awesome that's um so great um, and his first reaction to that was to say to me oh do you need my wife's boat id i didn't know her name so he didn't say to me you know his first thing wasn't oh you know do you want my wife's name or do you need details about her but the first thing he says to me and in this moment a very human sort of Connection was, do you need my wife's boat ID? And it sort of just, you know, um, made me realise how impactful that actually is to call these people by their boat IDs. Um, another part of this social cultural socio cultural impact is simply that it's sort of compounding. So you can kind of see the compounding um, effect of our policies over the last sort of two or three decades. So our policies have become progressively more oppressive. So Mandatory detention was introduced in 1992, and originally it had a time limit. Um, In 1994, the time limit was removed. This kind of kept spiralling and the rhetoric or the messaging around asylum seekers within our sort of political sphere kept um, going. In 2001, we had a particularly detrimental impact, which was the uh, event, which was the Tampa event. Um, In 2002, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees expressed concerns about the vilification of asylum seekers in Australia. Um, you know, we continue, there's a fair few sort of events that happen between then, but then in 2015 we get to the point that the UN starts reporting that conditions in offshore centres are akin to torture. And just last week actually the International Criminal Court made a ruling that conditions in offshore detention um, has met criteria for crimes against humanity. Um, so we can kind of see the spiralling and the progression. Um, of our, our policies over the last couple of decades and, and that's a, a product of us using the rhetoric and the language and the dehumanisation and then the government compounding that with um, power over who can talk and invisibilising the refugee experience and, and then you know introducing even more toxic rhetoric and and this is kind of what happens and so you can kind of see the cultural impacts of, of, of this, this messaging and this power and, and the control you can see it on a personal level when we, when we think about boat IDs and, and the individual people in detention centres. You know, we've got doctors in detention centres who are referring to their patients with their boat ID, so that happens on a personal level. Um, but then we have it on a societal level where you know, most of Australians now think that it's okay to lock up um, people in conditions which are now um, you know, akin to crimes against humanity. So, um, let's just think about how politics is working through this process. So, the messaging that we're talking about, the dehumanisation um, that, that comes with some of these phrases, um, it's shaped by politicians, but what is driving the politicians? What are they motivated to by? Are they motivated to, to by doing good, or is there another motivation there? These are all the sort of questions that I, I've been thinking about a lot. See, words and the constructions of words are very powerful, and this is how culture is created. And this sort of echoes sentiments in the in the book of James, so I guess it shouldn't come as a surprise that words are powerful. Um, but words can be constructed to make any point seem morally good. So while the UN says um, that what we are doing is a crime against humanity, the messaging that politicians have used consistently over decades has been constructed so that most Australians wouldn't question our treatment of refugees because of sentiments like refugees are illegal. Um, These sentiments um, there's literature out there that says that these sentiments, these these phrases that contribute to dehumanisation actually provide a moral licence to treat people inhumanely. Another thing that's going on with this sort of progression Um, political scholars talk about this idea of it's called moral panic and folk devils. It's this idea, it's a political device that um, politicians create a moral panic around a social issue and they create a folk devil, so a fake devil perhaps. Um, So it's almost like a scapegoat. And it's a political device so that the government sets up an issue that they can then campaign on and that they can then try to control or try to Achieve or or change or, or show some progress, so that they can show that they are in control and they're governing the country well. Um, so this is this moral panic and this folk devil um, has occurred over the last couple of decades in Australia. Immigration scholar um, James Jupp he argues that a key escalation in our hardline policy uh, was a result of a political decision made by John Howard in two thousand and one, in the face of an upcoming election just around the Tampa affair, um, because in the last election the Coalition had lost about a million voters to One Nation and so John Howard saw a way to create an even more hardline stance to create um, an incentive to get some of those One Nation voters back. So this is an example of how politicians will use tactics um, to achieve power, achieve control And Part of this is that politicians have the most powerful microphones in Australia and think about this for a second If I wanted to be on the front page of the papers tomorrow or if a refugee wanted to be on the front page of the papers tomorrow I wouldn't have the power to call up a a newspaper like the Australian or the Sydney Morning Herald and say I've got a story for you. They just simply wouldn't be interested in me Um, but as soon as you're the Prime Minister you get that kind of power So, politics and politicians hold immense power over our culture and immense power over the messages that our society hears and therefore over our ethics. Unfortunately, what is dominated, what is oppressed, what is forgotten and ultimately mistreated in this process is the people, often the most disadvantaged, the most vulnerable, the people that don't have the power. Um, These people are our fellow humans, they are God's sons and daughters. So we need to think very critically about the messages given to us by politicians. So this takes me to part three. So I'm just going to try and be a little bit practical um, and sort of summarise some ideas. Now obviously I don't have heaps of time to talk, um, but some ideas um, that I now sort of try and implement when I'm hearing the news or when I'm thinking about political issues to try and figure out what is good um, and how I can be part of goodness in the world. And these are just my thoughts. I would be interested to hear everyone else's thoughts a bit later as well. So the first one is doing good occurs at an individual level and also at a societal level. So for the purposes of this talk and explaining some of the (coughs) concepts, I separated to some extent ethical decision-making between individual actions and then actions at the systemic level or or ideology at a systemic or societal level. But we shouldn't push this divide between the individual and the societal too strongly because, of course, our individual actions do shape culture and impact the political sphere on the societal level. Um, So our individual actions do shape culture and the reverse of that is if we don't participate um, in the political sphere or in creating culture, um, that potentially leaves toxic politics unchallenged. So that, of course, has implications too. So I think if we want to see goodness we must then be involved in the creation of good culture um, and be influences in the political sphere. And this of course is true for the multiple cultures that we are part of. So cultures in our family, in our schools, in our churches, in our cities, um, in our world. Because of this realization I have made my peace with being a bloody do-gooder if that means that I am an interferer in political affairs because for these reasons, um, I see a command in the scriptures to be part of achieving justice and seeking peace. Uh, B, the second point, um, I think we need to notice the impact of politics on our ethical ideas and on our treatment of others. And I think that is because the struggle for power um, and politics is a significant cultural force and it has significant implications on our understandings of ethics and our treatment of others, and this is particularly dangerous for social groups without power. So we need to understand the power dynamic and look for the voices of the powerless in topics that impact them. We need to think about this when we are critically analysing messages that we're hearing from society, and we need to recognise this force in our individual actions too. So if you're reading an article on a political topic or organising an event on a topic or giving your opinion on a topic, um, I think it's important to think about, are you making room for the voice of the person who is impacted by this? Have you considered how your opinion and your words or your messages or however you choose to contribute, um, have you considered what impact that will have on our culture and on the treatment of others? The last thing I wanted to talk about was your motivations and whether you are motivated to do good. So when we're talking about political issues and whether it's we're en- you know, when we're engaging on Facebook or whether we're engaging face-to-face or whether we're engaging in a political event or when we're forming our just opinions at home, what is our motivations? Or another way of saying this is where is your heart? So the scriptures tell us what doing good looks like It looks like peace, seeking peace, seeking justice, correcting oppression. It looks like kindness and humility. Um, And are those pursuits your motivation, my motivation? Do I ever even think about these pursuits um, and what that looks like for me? Because it might look differently for all of us. We all have different skills and talents. Um, So God's heart is for his children And he is constantly challenging us to love our neighbour. Is that also my heart? Now, I think about this a lot when we start talking about different policies, and obviously I get myself into conflict and situations where I'm fighting about refugee policy in particular, um, just because of my job. Um, And for me, when I hear these arguments about policies... um, my heart always or my thoughts always or my intention is always that my heart goes towards the person that we are talking about, so the person from a refugee background um, and learning from my friends from refugee backgrounds and understanding their experiences because at the end of the day we aren't talking about abstract policies we are talking about imprisoning a person for potentially five years in conditions that the UN deem to be a crime against humanity So, for that person, the son or the daughter of God, um, that's actually impacted by this political issue, I want to be thinking about, am I seeking justice for that person? Am I correcting oppression for that person? I see really close links here um, to Matthew 25, where Jesus explains his care for the prisoner and the oppressed, and he commands um, his followers to go and, and meet with these people and learn from these people. So, During my PhD, um, part of it was looking at how the medical profession was responding to these injustices in um, immigration detention, and I was actually quite inspired by the way that doctors had been responding um, to these politics, and I found that the the doctors were actually um, quite good at remaining uninfluenced by politics. And so I wanted to show you some quotes from these doctors, um, because I think that there are things in there that followers of Jesus can learn. So the first one, um, this is Dr. Chan and Professor Kerridge. They say, are they genuine refugees? I have no idea because I never asked. And as a doctor who sat beside Ahmed or Layla or Anthony, I didn't really need to know. And I love this because they're, they're addressing the politics, they're aware of the politics. Are they genuine refugees? Their answer to that is, I have no idea because it's irrelevant. Because they are self-identifying as a doctor. As a doctor, my role is to be a doctor. My role is to sit with my patient and to care for my patient. My role is not to challenge their political status. And I love the idea of sitting beside the patient. It's just so personal and it does so much to correct some of that toxic rhetoric that we get, that we get around refugees. The second quote is from Professor Auer and he was the president of the Australian Medical Association when he made this statement. He said, as doctors, again he's self-identifying <coughs> as a doctor, um, he says, we care for all people without regard to race or creed, without regard to where, we, where they came from. This is a basic moral tenet of our profession. So again, we've got the statement as a doctor. And again, we've got a statement about what the medical profession's ethics actually are. And we've got to care for all people, regardless of their political status. So I love that doctors so regularly self-identify as doctors. It shows that their identity is so strong. I love that they talk about their role as a doctor. Um, being to care for all people. I remember speaking with a a well-respected minister and public commentator who'd spoken about refugee policy and and I was sort of challenging him on some of the ways that he was talking about it. And he said to me, well, it's a a tricky political area. What would you do if you were the PM? And it made me realise that maybe followers of Jesus are seeing our role wrong, or perhaps we've lost sight of what our role actually is. See, doctors are remarkably clear on their ethics because they know that their role is to heal and treat. And I wonder, as Christians, do we know what our role is? Is our role to engage in political debate and to adopt political rhetoric? Or is our role to love our neighbour? And I, I love that doctors' identity is so firm that they constantly quote their professional ethics to care you know, in these quotes they talk about it being a a basic moral tenet for doctors to care for all people, regardless of where they are from. And I think you could say that the same ethic um, applies, comes from the Bible too. So I think God calls us to to love our neighbours and the story of the Good Samaritan sort of questions, who is our neighbour? And I think the answer we get is that we should be caring for all people And see, doctors were so quick to invoke their medical ethics when talking about the treatment of others. They didn't delve into policy debates. They didn't use political rhetoric. They firmly stayed in their role as carers for their patient. And it made me wonder whether we could hold a a firm identity in the same way. It also made made me wonder if I was to make a similar comment as this, as a follower of Jesus, what that might look like. So I've just given it a go. Perhaps it would look like, should I care for refugees? As a follower of Jesus, I seek to love my neighbour and to do good, to seek justice, to love kindness, to correct oppression, and to pursue peace. Thank you. Ooh. I forgot, if you do want more information on refugee policy in Australia, because I realised that I haven't addressed that here, um, Common Grace has a lot of resources on their website.
0: Uh, So do we have some initial questions?
1: Um, For me,
2: I guess one of the um, logical, I guess, next steps, for want of a better phrase, um, in thinking about some of this stuff is whether or not um, as Christians uh, we can actually then, or how do we, Um, actually participate in political processes. um, Because I think, I mean, I know that I personally have been challenged a lot when I first became politically active by a lot of Christians saying that I couldn't or shouldn't affiliate um, or choose sides or um, make statements that were very clear and broad. I mean, obviously, it was usually that I disagreed with whoever was saying that. Um, But but I guess, yeah, I'm I'm interested in have you thought or in the process of asking those questions, did you, um, was there anything that you could articulate about how we can actually then um, thoughtfully participate? Like, those processes, whether they be, you know, the cultural stuff you're talking about, the political, they all just happen, that, you know, we can't, stop, we can't be in a bubble, how do we then actually engage in them?
1: Yeah, well yeah, I guess it depends what sort of context you're talking about, whether you're talking about engagement on like a one-on-one level, like challenging, you know, another person who has a different political belief to you, because my answer is going to be different depending on what context you're in. So if you're talking to someone on Facebook, or talking to someone, having like a coffee with someone, and you're disagreeing with them Um, I would sort of challenge everyone to be listening more than they're talking like I obviously understand (laughs) better than a lot of people how frustrating it can be when someone's got like an opposing political belief than you but I find that it's really helpful to figure out how that person has actually formed their political belief um, because often they've got you know they might have some uh, something that's illogical in, in part of their thought process, or perhaps there's something that's happened to them personally that's made them sort of form that thought, that idea. Um, and then once you can understand their beliefs a bit better, that's when you can sort of better engage with, with the issue and, and trying to, un, you know, explain your ideas back to them. So that would be if you're engaging on a one-on-one level. Um, but in terms of engagement on a broader level, I think it's very difficult to engage in political issues, as a single person, which is why, like, I love Common Grace as a movement because um, there is power in in more people. And and as we sort of explained tonight, power is so important when you're talking about culture and ideology. And um, and unless disadvantaged people groups are actually forming collectives where they can have some form of power to sort of respond to some of this toxic politics, they're never going to get very far. So. Um, Yeah. So in terms of political engagement on a wider level, I would just sort of be encouraging people to seek out groups like Common Grace, um, where you can be engaging as a collective. And it also means that you're less isolated like um, before I was part of Common Grace, I would do lots of refugee advocacy by myself and it's quite like isolating and you know, you very quickly burn out or wonder, you know, am I doing good? Like, am I doing the right thing here? Why am I alone in this? Um, does that mean I'm just like some outlier that's got it all wrong kind of thing? Um, but being part of a, yeah, a group is much more powerful for you and the movement, I think.
3: I work with Ebony at Common Grace and I guess um, thinking about um, I feel the pressure of what should Common Grace be saying or doing and, you know, lots of people uh, want to say, you know, you should be this or you should be that or um, or you should be responding to people who are attacking back, you know, um, and I guess um, in light of what you've just said, I feel like there's a space for just being a positive, generous, strong force on, no, we really think this and it's okay to hold that, but um, I guess I don't really have a question more. What do you think about that? Do you reckon that's the right model? I agree. Is that, and, and why? Can you tell me why you agree with that? I think that's the right thing to do, but I'm still kind of wrestling with, in this context where you do feel like, am I just speaking to the same people? Or why why is that the right thing to do?
1: Yeah. I think it comes back to the power stuff again. Like if you've got you know, a whole crowd of people who are happily using language that's dehumanising, just as an example, and you've got no opposing force to reckon with that, then it creates a culture where that's the dominant force and that's the culture then that persists and and people see as being the dominant force and will unfortunately start adopting and picking up. It also means that it leaves the disadvantaged person themselves isolated in that and, and sort of the lone force in challenging some of that toxic sort of rhetoric. So if you've got um, a movement that's trying to love and support an ally with some of those disadvantaged groups, then I think that that's yeah, really positive. And it might not mean that we fix all of the world's problems, but what can you do? That's better than nothing. you holding a positive
3: alternative space that can then
1: attach to and Yeah. That, that is a task in itself, so is Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
4: Um, that was great, thanks. Um, I'm interested in, was interested in the idea that, that part of doing good is truth telling and it seems a lot of people would say that there's even less truth in politics and more fake news than there should be, than there used to be. I'm just wondering, did you reflect all on that side of of um, truthfulness and and what part it plays in power and so on and how we can guard ourselves against being part of the, the bad, the dark side and all that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I mean, I've thought about this a lot. Um, I was just at a wedding a couple of weeks ago and a a friend um, that I hadn't seen for a couple of years, um, said to me, Oh, how's work going or something? And we're talking about work. And he was like, Oh, what's the law firm that you work for? Um, and I said, Slater and Gordon. And he was like, Oh, but they're ambulance chasers. And I was like, Oh, yeah, um, and I mean, like I almost wear the term "ambulance chaser as a badge of pride these days because you hear it all the time, and actually, um Peter Dunne, after the announcement of the class action settlement, called us um, ambulance chasers in parliament um, and and so it's quite funny there's another another news article that had ambulance chasers in the heading and a picture of me, and I was like,, oh. <laughs> um, but what I loved about that idea, and that this man brought this up a couple of weeks ago because I was thinking about it, and i'm like, that makes so much sense that you know, someone's created this title of ambulance chaser to sort of deride the job that I'm doing in trying to hold, you know, speak truth to power kind of thing. Um, You know, no one says to a teacher, oh, you're a student chaser, like you're making money off teaching students. Um, But the fact that I'm making money off speaking truth to power means that I then become a political opponent that is sort of chastised as being an ambulance chaser. And so I think, Again, for me, it always comes back to this sort of power dynamic where if you hear something like a term like ambulance chaser, like do you, I mean, that obviously has a negative connotation. As soon as you're hearing negative connotation, I start thinking to myself, why has this got a negative connotation? What is the message behind this phrase? Why is it that this person um, is trying to oppose this other person? Um, What are the sort of power dynamics at play here? Um, So that's, so yes, when you're talking about truth and fake news, uh, that's where my mind goes to, is trying to understand the message behind the phrase or the, the news item or whatever it is, or how the, the message has been constructed or how the news is being told. Because, I mean, one piece of news can be constructed in five different ways depending on, I mean, we saw it this week with the, the horrible situation with the family, um, you know, the, the very, very different headlines that we saw reporting that event. Um, it's very confronting, really. Um, yeah, does that answer your question at all? There's some there's some comments about truth.
5: <laughs> Thanks, Ebony. I guess my question is starting where you've begun, but thinking more broadly, a lot of the things we talk about here, and obviously refugee issues, weren't them, where we're probably not in our majority either, certainly not across Australia, but even in the churches. And the question then of... What we believe is good when we can't persuade others. And I'm always challenged by Bonhoeffer's idea uh, that in the end he had to do what he sensed God wanted him to do but he didn't get to call it right or good or moral. He just had to throw himself back on the mercy of God. So I guess I really want to say that I agree with you. I think what you're saying is good but over 20 years and for me it started back in the Tampa days are uh, just simply unable to convince a majority of Australians that mandatory detention is a bad thing. So how, that's the intersection of good and politics. I'm just wondering what your response to that is when we can't actually convince others, whether it's inside or outside the church, that what we believe is good, um, we we fail. Not just once or twice, but over a long period of time.
1: Yeah, Yeah, it's, it's, it's sad. I mean, since starting my job, um, and working on refugee issues, like the amount of people that sort of no longer talk to me or like have blocked me off Facebook or whatever, like, you know, there's been real social impacts, I guess, on me personally, because I've been very vocal about my views around refugees. So like, I've experienced, um, this in a really real way that I am in the minority and, um, yeah, and my ideas around what is good with refugees is a minority position. Um, I guess my answer to that or like how I would engage with people on that would be different if, if they were followers of Jesus or not. Um, you know, often if, if they're a follower of Jesus, I will sort of talk about Matthew 25. That's like my favourite chapter of the Bible. Um, and in Matthew 25, um, Jesus talks about... Um, you know, I was the prisoner um, and where were you kind of thing. And this idea that we can learn from people who are oppressed, like the prisoner or um, the widow in distress. And and I think Jesus calls us to go to these places where there are prisoners, where there are people who are oppressed, and to listen to their stories and to understand um, their experiences, because I think that is where we truly find the heart of God. And that is where we truly learn um To love others even those others who look different to us or have a different story or who we might be naturally fearful of if we haven't sort of challenged some of those conceptions so um so that's how i would sort of start approaching a christian about some of these ideas and particularly someone who doesn't agree with my position but for someone who's a non-Christian, it's a little bit more tricky because, as you say, it's been part of our culture for 20 years or more now that, you know, refugees are just illegal and and I guess it kind of comes back to how I answered your question before. Like I often try and ask questions about their experiences with refugees. Have you ever met a refugee? Um, do you know what the definition of a refugee actually is? Um, try to sort of get to the bottom of of their understanding bef- and listening to them before you start. Challenging because I think as soon as you just, you know, create a political v- battle, um, you just sort of get in your trenches and it's kind of d- goes nowhere. But I think when you yeah start listening and learning from each other, that's kind of when the discussion it's a bit more fruitful. But it's really tricky. I don't have any good answers.
4: I just uh, wanted to go to the point about uh, uh, in terms of uh, being a Christian. Uh, well uh, score more his uh you know uh, self-confessed uh, Pentecostal, you know I mean yet you know um, how is it that you know uh, i'm I'm just curious about the, how he reconciles you know his Christian faith you know uh, with that of uh, you know being a prime minister and yet still condoning what's been happening over in uh, Mag- uh, Magnus Island and you know uh, in Nauru and you know in terms of the you know treatment of refugees
1: Yeah. I mean you'll have to ask him that yourself how he justifies his position but um, I don't know I mean this is something that's plagued me for a number of years now Um, you know the more interested well I've never been interested in politics I don't like politics but the more I've had to engage with politics because of my job I've had to think through how is it that Christians who all profess to love God um, can come to very different sort of political positions and it's something I still haven't really got to the bottom of Um, I don't really I mean there are a number of reasons why people have different political positions um, and I find it hard to reconcile some of those political positions with what we read in the scriptures about loving your neighbour. So yeah, I I don't
4: know. That was great. Um, I think I'm really interested in the relationship between power, politics and shaping of culture. Um, As a Christian, I'm a bit like you, I hate politics, I don't like. I don't want to get involved in politics, but it's kind of like a necessary evil. I, I really enjoyed, I appreciated the example of the doctors being really apolitical. As a Christian, I've always thought we were meant to be involved in shaping culture, like being change makers, but, um, and, and I think alongside the kind of examples you've given, uh, as a Christian in our society, even though I might not have... Power I have a lot more power than a refugee though, so actually I guess the question is, have Christians kind of sold out a bit? Are we being are we slaves to our culture? are we buying into the cultural narrative the idea that mandatory detention is necessary, you know like because we 're just going along with what our politicians are saying and they 're just saying what they 're saying to maintain their power? Do you know what I mean like yeah. um, so as christians uh, well i mean Is the answer political engagement? Is it about speaking up, Uh, you know, being Um, truth-tellers? You know, I guess we can get all fired up, but if we go away and do nothing, like, is that an appropriate response?
1: Yeah. Again, this is one of the reasons why I love Common Grace, because I don't think the answer can ever be to do nothing, because I think that's really dangerous, and I think that... um just sort of fails in the role that God has sort of given us um, to be seeking justice and to, you know, seeking the end of oppression and, and, and to be seeking peace. Um, so I don't think the Christian church as a whole, as a collective, can do nothing. And I, I understand that individual churches might find it difficult to engage in politics on an, on an individual level because maybe an individual congregation doesn't have the skills to engage politically. Um, and so I think that's when common grace and and other christian sort of political organizations can be really beneficial and helpful because um as a collective i think like you say um i don't have much power but i have more power than a refugee and also the christian church as a whole has a hell of a lot more power than just me um so again it comes back to that sort of collective effort and um yeah I don't know. I think uh, there's a meme that goes around that I find really, really compelling um, and, it's, and it's something like, um, have you ever wondered what you would do in Nazi Germany? Um, you're doing it right now. Has anyone ever seen that? I find that so convicting cause, because there are, there literally are people who are suffering right now um, in camps. I mean, maybe we're not putting refugees in gas chambers, but we're very much, you know, I've heard their suffering and their stories and, and honestly, it's really horrific, um, and, and so if we're not doing anything, then that's exactly what we would be doing in the face of Nazism, and yeah.
0: Thank you, Ebony. Um, I realise there are more questions, and uh, we can continue some of that discussion over um, dessert, uh, but I wanted to express on behalf of all of us here uh, our thank you for the work that you do as a human rights lawyer, and, and Thank you for bringing it back to that, you know, the, the, the lived experience of people in suffering who, who need help. Um, but thank you also for the ground we've covered tonight. We've covered uh, uh, many, uh, a lot of ground um, on things that really matter. And you've given us a uh, picture that is um, broad ranging and can be applied to topics well beyond this one, but you've covered the, the sort of example Um, you know you have uh, so much depth um, and perspective to offer on it. So thank you for your insight and the wisdom and the work you've put into researching and preparing and articulating and sharing that with us this evening. And so in addition to a modest honorarium that we give to all our speakers, I'd like to give you a jar of Five Ways Honey as a small token of our thanks. Um, And the rest of us will express our thanks.
1: Thank you. Also, I should mention that um, I've been <coughs> thinking about like, using the frameworks from my PhD to write like a public-level book about doing good and weaving some of the stories from the refugees that I worked with um, together as a book. So if you do have any feedback or insights from some of the stuff that I've talked about, I would actually really appreciate hearing them um, because that will help me think about whether or not this book idea is worth doing. Mm. Thank you. <laughs> That's a selfish request, yeah. <laughs> Thanks.
0: Well, as I said earlier, Peace Talks is a monthly event hosted by Paddington Anglican Church, aiming to serve the community by promoting and cultivating deep conversations about life, the world, and everything. Recordings of tonight and of many of our previous events are available on iTunes or Apple Podcasts um, by searching for Peace Talks. Uh, Don't forget to take this with you and put those next two dates into your diary and invite others who might be interested in those topics um and fill in the info slip if you haven't done that at one of our previous events and you'd like to go on to the the email list but uh thank you as well for coming um as we head outside for uh some further refreshments um may the conversation continue